turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. In the last few weeks, our nation has once again, um, if you've been paying attention, been exposed to one of the more tragic parts of living in a fallen world is we have had to turn on the news and see the pictures once again of a couple of dozen more victims of mass shootings uh, from the horrific events that took place in a bar in California and a synagogue in Pennsylvania. But I want to introduce the sermon today by talking about uh, the one that almost happened three weeks ago in Kentucky. On October 18th, uh, the Kentucky State Police pulled up to the home of 20-year-old Dylan Jarrell and found him backing out of his driveway. And they also found in his car with him a firearm, a Kevlar vest, and 200 rounds of ammunition. And this story hit particularly close for our family because upon further investigation, they found that he had made threats against uh, two of the three high schools where the students from uh, the youth group that I uh, used to be youth pastor over attend. I also discovered that he had been researching how to carry out a school shooting made death threats to several people from his former school, which is actually uh, the same school uh, where our kids would have gone had we stayed in Kentucky. And they discovered a detailed plan of attack for Anderson County High School, a small school where several students from our former church attend. Gerald admitted to wanting to become the next school shooter. But what kept that from happening were the actions of some people who recognized a threat and then responded appropriately to it. The day before he was arrested, Gerald somehow found the Facebook page of a widow and mother of three young children, Coberly Bull, who lives in New Jersey. Coberly is a white woman raising her three biracial children herself after her husband died seven years ago. No, they had never met and, and they lived hundreds of miles apart. Dylan Gerald sent a vulgar, racist, hate-filled message on Facebook to Mrs. Bull expressing his desire that she and her three children die. After leaving the message, he hid himself from her on Facebook so that she couldn't find out anything about him other than see his picture. Didn't know where he was from or where he was at that moment. So she called the police and she uh, posted the picture on Facebook along with the message and reshared it on Facebook and it was reshared continually on Facebook until someone recognized the man and, and it was discovered that he lived actually several states away in the town of Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. But rather than being satisfied that the man probably wasn't actually a danger now to, to her or her kids and just letting it go since it was hundreds of miles away, Coberly called the police in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky and was put through to Officer Josh Satterley. And then, by the way, destroying the the ridiculous narrative that white cops are all at least a little bit implicitly racist, Mrs. Bull said that Officer Satterley responded as if his own children had been threatened and was able to apprehend Dylan Gerald as he was pulling out of his driveway before he could carry out the attack. More than likely, a great tragedy was avoided because a few people heard threatening language, recognized it for the threat that it was, and then responded appropriately to it. And over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the book of Jude, and in the first 16 verses of the book, we have seen Jude desperate to convince his readers of the existence of the threat of false teaching all around them. He wants them to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a real danger among them in, in, their, in this threat of false teaching. He wants them to open their eyes to it and see it. Not only has he tried to help them to understand the magnitude of the danger they are in, but he also has tried to explain what these false teachers look like so that they can recognize 
recognize them. The main problem, the main problem that Jude is addressing in this book, absolutely, is that his readers are unaware of the danger that is among them. That he wants to open their eyes to that. He, he tries to help them recognize it through, through illustrations from nature and correlations to the Old Testament and Jewish history, which they were familiar with. And over the main body of this letter, from verses 4 through 16, he has not been giving any type of instruction to the people. He's only been describing the problem that they face. And if you remember, way back in, in verse 3, Jude says that the purpose for writing this letter was to urge these Christians to contend for the faith. But then he has gone from there, uh, that verse, all the way up to this point, verse 17, without really telling them to do anything. His only emphasis has been uh, to use everything possible to convince them of the danger among them. But now, finally, here in verse 17, he turns his attention back to those whom he has called beloved, those who are the called, those who are beloved in God, those who are kept for Jesus Christ. And he has not been saying all of these things through the first 16 verses because he is just one of those negative Christians. He hasn't been saying all of these things just to, just to scare them all and to, and to show his understanding of Scripture. And he hasn't been sharing all of this just to, to complain to them in, in hopes that they can all kind of complain together about the foolish false teachers and those who foolishly follow them. He wants them to understand this danger because he loves them and they need to respond to it. So, hopefully after the, the first two sermons, we, we've all come to the understanding that false teaching is present everywhere in the visible church in our time. And last week we saw that this, what this teaching looks like and, and what it does, the effect that it has. And finally, this, this week we're going to look at what we are to do in light of these realities. We're going to do that by looking at four responses to the threat of false teaching. Four responses to the threat of false teaching. You'll find them in your bulletin. And as we read verses 17 through 25 together. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire, and others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, from this passage we can see four responses to the threat of false teaching. The first one in your bulletin, be mindful of His plan. Be mindful of the plan of God. That is, we need to remember that, that none of this that is happening is a surprise to God. And that nothing happens outside of His sovereign plan. Not even the most vile of false teaching. We see this in verses 17 and 18 when he, when he says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. 
This is so important. It's so important to understand this because after the last few weeks of studying and looking at Jude together, and some of the examples we've talked about from, from, from current examples of false teaching that we see all over our country and the world, especially some of the stuff we talked about if you've come to ST in the last couple of weeks or to the Sunday evening services, some of those examples, we have seen that this stuff is everywhere. It's everywhere. And in fact, it is, it is more prevalent than the teaching of the truth. Can you imagine then what we would be thinking if there was nothing in the Bible about false teaching? This might be what some in Jude's audience would be tempted to think as well. After being rattled out of our safe little bubble and having our eyes opened to the serious threat all around us within the church, we might be tempted to start thinking that God has lost control of the situation. Things are, things are out of control. And that could lead us to, to one of the worst possible responses that we could have. We have to come in and, and save the church for God. The things have gotten out of hand. God needs us to help Him out. Because there should be, as we've been reading through this together, there should be some sort of reaction that's building up in, inside of you. Some sort of reaction building up inside of you as you read and understand the book of Jude. If, if your eyes are open to the truth of God's Word, then with each illustration that Jude shares, your awareness and your readiness for action should be building up in you. So, make no mistake, there are going to be people who hear the message of Jude. Hear the message coming through Jude loud and clear and respond by saying something along the lines of, okay, I mean, that sounds, yeah, you know, that's good to know, but I think you might be overreacting a bit. Everything seems pretty good, and we don't want to come across too critical. Like they'll hear Jude, what he's saying, and they totally miss the point. And their only reaction to his teaching is one of excuses. Like, okay, I, I know there's a lot of truth in there, but the main thing we need to remember, the main thing we need to remember in, in all of this is that we're, we're not coming across as judgmental. That's the main thing. Then, never mind that Paul tells us that these are exactly the types of people that we are to judge in 1 Corinthians 5.12, those who are within the church so that we may purge the evil from among us. This is what we see, the most common response to the clear teaching that we see that we have seen the last couple of weeks in Jude is not how can I apply this, but how can I dull this? In other words, how can I make something that the Bible takes very seriously and make it sound less serious? This is how the majority of us and respond to Jude. But for those who are taking the Word of God seriously, for those who love His truth, for those who come to God's Word saying, expose in me what I am blind to, those people are hearing and comprehending Jude and they're becoming more alert to what's going on around them and they're ready for action. And with every illustration that Jude shares, it's like a, like a sleeping tiger in a cage that you're trying to wake up and, and get ready to, to attack someone. When he says, there's enemies of God and they're, they're among you. They're like the rebellious Israelites. They're just like the fallen angels. They're just like the Sodomites. And they are living among you. It's like the shaking of that cage. And they, they rely on their dreams. They defile authority. They, they blaspheme. And they are among you. They, they're just like Cain. They're just like Balaam. They're just like Korah. And they are sitting with you, their hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless, twice dead trees, noisy waves of the sea that promise a lot but leave you with nothing but death and filth. They are like useless wandering stars, and they are eating with you at your love feasts without fear. 
By this point of the letter, those taking these words seriously are going to be and should be all riled up, ready for action, thinking that, that, and and maybe possibly thinking wrongly, that everything's gotten out of control and something needs to be done right away. Something does need to be done right away, but it hasn't gotten out of control. But guess what? The more you look into false teaching and you start examining the type of things that are being taught around the world in the name of Christ, the more easy it is to become this way. I know that in these last couple of weeks as I've been delving into this stuff and looking through some dark, black garbage that's being taught around the world, I I have been tempted to think this way. And it would, in fact, become quite easy to look at all of this knowing that something needs to be done and looking everywhere and coming to the conclusion that it's too late. The cancer spread too far. The damage is irreversible. And that is why this first response that Jude gives us is so critical. So to the the person whose eyes have now been opened to the pervasive cancer that has infected the visible church but but looks at it and says it seems hopeless, and to the one who who also is on the edge of his seat and just waiting for Jude to, to tell him, where do I attack? Where do I attack before things get worse for God? Jude says, but you must remember, beloved. You must remember. Remember, before you go out and attempt to do a single thing, remember that nothing happens outside of the sovereign plan of God. Nothing, not even this. Jude here reminds them that this is exactly what the apostles said was coming We have talked in the last couple of weeks about the fact that every single New Testament author warns against false teaching. And now how that demonstrates just how serious false teaching is. But it also demonstrates how inevitable it is. I have a list of Scriptures that I wanted to go through here, but for the sake of time, I'm going to tell you what they are. You can look them up later, but we've seen Paul talk about them in in just in the passage that Travis read from 1 Timothy 6 this morning. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15, Paul says, "...for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness." Their end will correspond to their deeds. And we've read Paul's, the way he talked to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, 31, warned them of wolves coming in who won't spare the flock. So we've seen it in Paul and in John. In 1 John 2, 18 and 19, we see John warning them about false teachers coming in. First John 4, 1 John 4.1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And even in the little book of Second John, and even in Third John, but Second John 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver in the Antichrist. Jude here is is actually pretty much kind of clearly quoting or getting his information from Peter. In in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 3, Peter says this. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Jude actually takes a lot from Second Peter 2 and 3, and it's obvious that he's saying that these people that Peter has been warning them about, has been warning the recipients of his letter about, that they're coming. Jude is saying that those people that Peter was warning about, they're here. They're here and they're present among you right now. We, we also know that Jesus Himself taught of the certainty of the coming of false prophets. 
Remember what we read in Matthew 7 a couple of weeks ago, Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Notice notice how in what we're looking at, in all of these examples, the apostles are not saying, here is what you need to do to prevent false teachers from coming. There's always saying false teachers are coming. Be ready and live this way in light of this reality. Jesus warns us to warns us what to look for in that passage. He doesn't tell us how to keep them from coming. And this gives us confidence. This should give us confidence that even these people, those who Jude describes again in verses 18 and 19 as scoffers who follow their ungodly passions, those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Essentially, he is talking about unbelievers who have, who have become leaders among them in the church. These people, even these people, are where they are because the sovereign Lord of the universe has them there for His purpose. And if He can use Satan for His sovereign purpose, then we can be assured that the existence of these teachers in the church will ultimately also be used for the good of His church and to bring glory to His name. Beloved, our first response to false teaching must be to remember that even these things are part of the design, part of the good plan of our sovereign God. Point two, we, we see our second response to false teaching in verses 20 and 21 where Jude tells us what we need to be doing in ourselves, in regard to ourselves, in light of the reality of false teaching all around us. Verses 20, 21, he says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Here we see what looks initially, at first glance, like four directives for us. Build ourselves up, pray in the Spirit, keep ourselves in the love of God, wait for the mercy that leads to eternal life. But actually, the only imperative here is to keep ourselves in the love of God. And the other three uh, are directives that, that demonstrate what it looks like to keep ourselves in the love of God. This is what keeping yourself in the love of God looks like. Commanding us to keep ourselves in the love of God sounds like just about the most difficult command you could imagine receiving. Does that mean that I have to do things that keeps God loving me? Because that's terrifying. Like, like if I'm not careful, I'm going to do something that causes, causes God to stop loving me and, and sends me to hell. We know that that cannot be what Jude means just from the other verses in the book of Jude. Verse 1, he says, he addresses his readers as those who are kept for Jesus. This is an action being done upon us. In verse 24, he is the one who is able to keep us and present us blameless. He's the one who keeps. So to discover what Jude means by keeping ourselves in the love of God, it is helpful to look at some of the things that Jesus said in John 14 and 15. So actually turn there really quickly. John 14 and 15. If you look at John, so look at John verse, or chapter 14, verse 15. We'll just, okay, we'll just go through these real fast. John 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, this is Jesus talking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And down a little further in John 14.21, he says again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Down a couple more verses in John 14.23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And the next verse, John 14.24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then in the next chapter, John 15, verses 9 and 10, he says again, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So it's clear from these verses, what is meant by keeping ourselves in the love of God. It's obedience. Obedience to Him. When my kids obey me, they demonstrate their, their love for me. And, and not just that, but their, their trust that I know what's best for them. When, when they disobey me, I still love them, but they are outside of my loving purposes for them. They are not doing the things which I have told them to do that I've told them to do because I love them and, and desire that they grow and mature into godliness. So, keeping ourselves in the love of God means obeying Him. It means calling Him Lord and then acting like He is Lord. And those other three Directives in Jude, we, we see in these verses, they just naturally flow out from the one who is intent on keeping himself in the love of God. This is what keeping yourself in the love of God looks like. And so the first one, back in Jude again, the first one of these is building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. This reminds us Way, way back to verse 3. Of verse 3, if, if, if we are being urged, if we are being urged to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, then we must be building ourselves up in that faith. What, what does that mean? Well, uh, in, at the end of uh, Acts 20 and Acts 20.32, that, that's the end of that passage where Paul is warning the Ephesian elders of, of false teachers that are going to come in. In, in 20.32 he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So it is the word of God that is able to build us up. One who is committed to keeping himself in the love of God is absolutely devoted to knowing and understanding God's Word. And this is what will keep us from falling prey to those who pervert His Word for their own purposes. If we really believe, if we really believe that building ourselves up in the most holy faith is important, then we will make the most of every opportunity given to us to understand the Word of God better. If we're taking this seriously, that's going to be our response to the Word of God. That is what we're going to do. We're going to make the most of every opportunity we have. It's so much more than just checking off a, a box on your daily Bible reading plan. So, so we have these classes here. It'll be starting shortly after the service is over. They have been hand-picked by the under-shepherds of this church that Christ has put over this church to help you understand His Word better. Those are available to you. And if you see false teaching around you and you lack the confidence to confront it, then you needed to be in Bill's class last week when he was marching through all of the areas that Jesus has authority over. And if you lack courage to confront false teachers because you're scared of them, then you need to be in here 
where Gary Odie and Gary Brotherton are teaching you to fear God more than fear man. We have these home groups starting up in January to help us get as much as possible out of the Scripture that is being exposited here on Sunday mornings. I can promise you right now, you are just getting the tip of the iceberg when it comes to wisdom and understanding that you can glean from this one chapter book of Jude. I have tried to fit as much as I could into these three sermons and even cheated and used the Sunday nights and cheated more and used the STMs. There's still so much more in here. We're going to be having these home groups as an opportunity for us to come together as a church and talk to each other about what we're getting out of, what we're understanding in the sermons together. What is all there? So that people who are seeing stuff in it that you didn't see can tell you. And you can tell them. And we can grow together. This is what it means to take the Word of God seriously. We have so many resources available in the bookstore to help you. And, and we have each other. We have each other. We're not a bunch of associates who bump into each other on Sundays just to, to make small talk. We're the church. We're to be deeply invested in each other's lives and we're to be building ourselves up together, talking to each other about how we are growing, what we are learning, helping each other to apply Scripture to our lives rightly, helping those who have been who are blind to a certain area because they've been enslaved to it for so long, understand the Scripture that they need to see and understand to change and grow in godliness. It's been my experience that the people who most easily get picked off by false teaching are the ones who are the least connected to their church. When I was with the Navigators, it was... There's a mixed bag of theology among everyone on staff that I knew and all of the staff positions. And it was always those, always those that didn't come from a strong church or weren't involved with a strong church because they didn't think they needed it because they were in ministry. It was those who were able to adapt every single new teaching and every trendy bestseller and put it into their theology and into their ministry. And even now, if if a bunch of them heard me say that, they would respond by saying, what's wrong with that? When I was in Kentucky, it was people who treated the church like a social club. It was nothing more than a place to, to meet on Sunday mornings rather than a people that you're a part of. The ones who would show up on Sunday morning for the service and block everyone out of their Sunday afternoon through Saturday lives who could actually stay home sick on a Sunday morning, flip on TBN, and feel like they hadn't missed out on anything. We have each other. Those who are serious about building themselves up in the most holy faith will utilize every resource that God has put at their disposal and give themselves to the body of Christ in order to constantly be growing in their understanding of the Word of God so that they can grow in this most holy faith that we've been commanded to contend for. The next way next way in this passage we see that we can see ourselves staying in the love of God is by praying in the Holy Spirit. And quickly, praying in the Holy Spirit simply means that we, we're praying in a manner that is consistent with the will of the Spirit. And how do we know what is consistent with the Holy Spirit? By knowing what is in the Word that the Spirit has inspired. This means we don't pray against suffering, but, but we pray that God would grant us the strength to glorify Him in our suffering. This means that we don't pray for our prosperity We pray that He will give us our daily bread. It means we don't pray for comfort or ease, but for holiness. And by the way, contrary to 
So the way that phrase, praying in the Holy Spirit, is used on TBN and Daystar and other places, it absolutely does not mean that we pray using some sort of unintelligible gibberish because 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15 makes it absolutely clear that when we pray and praise, we're to do it in such a way that our mind is fruitful. This phrase does not mean praying in a secret, private prayer language of tongues. It means that we, once again, take advantage of the precious privilege of coming together as a church and praying together, meeting together during the week, coming together corporately whenever we can to pray together like we'll be doing tonight, recognizing that praying in the Holy Spirit means praying with those who have been sealed with that same Spirit. And the last way we see that this verse shows us what remaining in the love of God looks like is that we are to be those who are waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This means anxiously, anxiously awaiting the return of Christ. The fulfillment of His mercy the day when we are finally set completely free from all the sin around us and in us. It makes so much sense that this is the mindset that we need to be in. Because it keeps us from getting attached to this world and this life and the things that everyone here prizes so much. It can be so hard, especially during the election season. Be tempted to be filled with a sense of hopelessness. It's becoming more and more obvious that we live in a country that is growing in its outspoken rebellion against God. A country that seems to be tearing itself apart. Our newly elected governor, the state we live in, finds one of the primary points of his identity as as something that we recognize as open rebellion against the created order and command of God. This is what he's known and praised for. He will now be the face of our state for several years, at least. And that can fill us with fear and dread and can place our focus on, on again, on the attacks that come from outside of the church. The type of things that we have already said are, are really no real threat to the church, but only have ever served to make the church stronger. Knowing that someone whose identity is wrapped up in his rebellion against God is going to be in office for years, and then, honestly, will most likely be replaced by someone who probably isn't any better in his rebellion towards God, is so discouraging until you remember that we are awaiting the return of the real king. And, and after he has reigned for a billion years, we won't even have touched the beginning of his perfect eternal reign. So when, when we're thinking in those terms, being concerned about this life, worrying about politics or the, the state of our country is even more silly than receiving a check for a billion dollars and then getting depressed and frustrated when you show up at the bank and there's one person in line in front of you, right? When Christ returns, every trial, every hurtful thing you've ever had to endure in this life will only serve to make eternity that much more wonderful. So as we see false teaching all around us, we must respond by making every effort to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that's by using His means to mature as His people. Next, next point in your outline, we're to be ministers of His mercy. So we've seen our responsibility for ourselves when it comes to false teaching, and now Jude points out how we are supposed to respond to those caught in false teaching. 
We're to be ministers of His mercy. We see that in verses 22 and 23. Look again there. He says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So, the first thing we see right away is that we are to respond. We are to respond to them. Because unfortunately, the main response to false teaching among a good number of us is just to notice it and hate it and maybe talk about it amongst ourselves and how stupid it is and make jokes about all the obvious fallacies that ignorant people are falling for. But here Jude is clearly calling us to respond with mercy for them. Doing, doing nothing but sitting back and looking down on false teachers and those trapped in it is forgetting the truth of verse 1. You didn't rise up from among the ignorant sheep to a place where you attained a special level of discernment. You are the called. You aren't so wise that you have kept yourself from being deceived. You are being kept. It's not of you. The next thing we notice is that that we are going to need to exercise discernment because people who have been caught in false teaching are caught up in in it to different degrees. And and they're going to require a different response on on a case-to-case basis. Contending for the faith will look different in different situations. So the first category we see is those who are doubting. Those who are doubting and we're to have mercy on them. In this culture, there are many Christians who are just confused and and don't know what to believe. There are a lot of really good churches out there that are teaching sound doctrine and helping people grow in discipleship. And, unfortunately, there are also a lot of bad churches and bad ministries out there who have similar-sounding doctrinal statements and statements of faith on their websites but are led by false teachers. And it can be really hard for a babe in Christ to find good discipleship. It can be very hard. I was watching a Justin Peters video this week. For those of you who don't know, write his name down on your outline. Justin Peters. And you should write write his name down. Follow him on Facebook. He has this ministry where he, he specializes in analyzing teachers and teaching and helping people to understand and, and recognize false teaching and false teachers. It's actually a name for that ministry. is taken out of this book. It's called Clouds Without Water. Anyway, I was watching one of these videos and I saw some of the people in the comments who were exactly like this. One lady in particular said... I am so confused. I thought I was learning so much from these teachers you've mentioned. But everything you are saying seems like it's right. I don't know what to believe anymore. We're to show mercy on these people. Not not to take for granted the fact that you understand it. you, You understand false teaching... And it's a responsibility you have now. You can't just sit back. You can't just see the error of false teaching and sit back and do nothing now. So so there are those who, who know they are confused and they're concerned about it. And then there's this other group who, who just aren't sure what they believe. And these are different than the ones who know that they don't know what they believe. These are the ones who, who, can, who can just be convinced by everything that comes along their way. Right? They, they might not say they are doubting, but they demonstrate that they are because they have no foundation and they just accept everything that has the name Christian on it. So they, they bought you know, the prayer of Jabez when it came out, and they were all about that for a while. And they bought the purpose-driven life when it came out, and they were all about that for a while. And then they got wild at heart, and they read that, and they were all about that, and they went on man weekends up into the mountains, and, and were excited about that for a while. And they're the ones who find that new meaning for themselves in every single Christian song that comes on the radio. They, they might seem like they are full of spiritual life because they're constantly excited about Christian-sounding things, but they aren't actually grounded in the truth of the Word at all. 
They're just jumping from Christian fad to Christian fad, and they have to get off the next one because if they stand on one too long, it sinks. We're to have mercy on those people and help them to find their identity in Christ through the Gospel. Not an identity in mere spirituality. Next, we see that we are to save others by snatching them from the fire. These are those who are under the hold of false teaching. They're the ones who have become convinced of it. This picture is a group of people that are being pictured here as as good as in hell. The only thing remaining is death. Again, we have to see them. We have to see them that way and understand that that's where they are. Those who have accepted a different gospel, those who have embraced a different gospel, are, are not just Christians we disagree with. They're not just a different denomination. We can't think of it like that. They are people who are right now as good as standing in the fires of hell and they have no idea. He says to, to snatch them. The word, the word actually means to, to remove someone by force or to drag them away. That doesn't mean that you have the ability to force someone against their will into heaven. Then you can't do that. But it does imply that this is going to take some effort. This is going to take some effort. You must be willing to invest time and energy. It implies that that you recognize that they are in danger even if they don't recognize it. These are the people whose feelings you you might have to risk hurting. The people who who you might have to essentially say, "I'm, I'm sorry, but what you believe about God is not right. And it's actually so fundamentally against the true gospel you can't hold that belief and be considered among one of his children. You have to recognize, have to recognize, people who embrace prosperity gospel teaching, people who think repentance isn't necessary, people that believe that what they actually need from God is a, a saving from some problem that isn't sin, and that God loves them just the way they are, and there's nothing in them that needs to change. People believe that type of stuff. You have to recognize that they're not immature Christians. They're those standing in the fires of hell and have no idea. You have to respond to them. Next it says, On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. These are the ones who are so deceived that they're leading others astray. We're still to have mercy on these people, but it's a mercy that's mixed with fear. We understand that the false teaching is so deceitful and so dangerous that even just having it around us, there's danger to that. Essentially, we're being told to remain humble around false teachers and appeal to God to keep us wise and keep us discerning as we interact with it. There's this idea of always staying alert, of not putting our guard down. Sometimes we do this, uh, sometimes we do this when we hear them say something that's kind of closely connected with the truth or something. Maybe they have a, a similar political belief. And so you, you're like, oh, okay. Or, or they mention a teacher or a preacher that you like or a book that you like, and that's mixed in there with their thinking. So you're like, okay, I like that guy too. I like that book too. That's the same political persuasion. I am, and you kind of drop your guard down a little. And you start to fall into the trap of thinking you're just having a conversation, just, just dialoguing. Now, we need to maintain a healthy fear, knowing that though there, sure, there might be some good stuff mixed in there, but it's polluted. The word that Jude uses that's translated as garment actually isn't the word for, for outer garment, but the word for the, for the inner garment, the one that is uh, closest to the body, the one that you can't see. It's, it's, the, it's the hidden sin that's there. Okay? We're not, we're not to, don't be one of those people who is only concerned with the sin that is easily observable. Be concerned with what you don't see. There, there are lots of false teachers who are against the more blatant, easily observable sins. 
They have to be that way because that's how they get so close to Christians. We need to be on the alert towards the hidden sins that are much easier for us to excuse and accept. Sins like, sins like tolerance for that which God finds intolerable. The admonition to have mercy with fear also shows us that we should not fall into the trap that so many people do by letting our mercy become a a greater driving force than our hatred for sin. Both of those must remain. Both of those need to be present or we won't give the right gospel. This type of attitude is prevalent and even encouraged in most Christian settings. This week I heard uh, Carl Lentz, the pastor of Hillsong Church in New York, say something that I've, I've heard from a lot of pastors before when asked whether or not couples who are sleeping together outside of a marriage can attend Hillsong. He said that everyone is free to come and worship, worship with us. I believe that sex is for marriage only. And if you invite me over for dinner and ask me about it, I'll let you know what I believe. But I'm not going to share that unless you invite me to share it. And you hear this kind of statement all the time in this culture. Offering a type of mercy that's not real mercy because real mercy warns of danger. But offering this fake mercy that requires you to exclude a proper understanding of sin. We're not to emphasize mercy so much that we de-emphasize the effect of sin. Both, both need to be emphasized. What is that person in, in the most need of? Is what they need the most a place that they can feel accepted? Is that what they need? Or is it the message that they need to turn from their sin, repent and believe the gospel? Because because otherwise hell is their destination. So, we have a response of mercy to those who have been taken into various degrees of false teaching. Never an attitude of indifference and certainly never one of superiority. And it's a mindset that will and must cause us to speak up Lastly, lastly, we're to be mesmerized by His majesty. We are to find our strength to carry on. We are to find our joy in what seems like such a, such a terrifying circumstance, this false teaching. We're to find our joy and our strength in the character and the attributes of God. After such a terrifying portrait of the reality of such a dangerous situation, those last couple of verses that we read that tell us to engage with the danger, that doesn't seem right. That seems off-putting. The the action that verses 22 and 23 ask us to take, that's in direct contradiction to the way warnings like this usually go. Right? So when when we visited the Grand Canyon... I told my kids how, how deadly it would be if they fell into the canyon. And I, I, I'd read all kinds of stories about people who had been at the Grand Canyon and underestimated their jumping ability, under, underestimated their climbing ability, underestimated the strength of a tree branch that they were hanging on to, or their ability to balance on something. I didn't read about all of these dangers and warnings and then, and then try to communicate with my kids the absolute seriousness and danger that was posed by the Grand Canyon and then tell them, now let's just see how close we can get up to this. Right? That's not, that's not what we do. That's not what we do with warnings. This is not what we do with serious warnings, but that's what Jude just did. That's what he just told us to do. How can he warn us of something so dangerous and then tell us to engage with it? We can engage in the battle against false teaching with absolute confidence because the same one who we are told in verse 1 has called us is also the one that we are told here has the power to keep us. 
You can be absolutely confident of this because of the truth of his character that we discover in verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You can be absolutely confident of this God. We can be sure that he will keep us from stumbling or from from falling, from apostatizing, because he is also the one who is able to present us before the glory of his presence. Think about what's just been said there. The presence of his glory should be a place that we should be terrified of being. He But He is an absolutely perfect and holy God and no sinner can stand before Him. We've been reminded through several examples in this book of the just punishment for those who rebel against God. That punishment of eternal fire that is mentioned in verse 7. That that should be ours because we know very well that there isn't one of us who can stand before the presence of His glory blamelessly. We know that. And in and of ourselves, we stand before Him full of sin, full of blame, and only the blameless can stand before Him. But it says He is able to present us blameless. How is that possible? Through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because of the amazing truth that we just sung about in His robes for mine, given a righteousness not our own? We we live a life full of sin and stains. Jesus Christ came and lived a blameless life. And even though He lived a blameless life, He went to the cross. He underwent the punishment of eternal fire that was supposed to come to us. And because He is fully God, He's able to take all of the eternal punishment for all of the called, he was able to take that all upon himself, upon the cross at that time. And when we repent of sin and put our trust in this just payment for our sins, God takes the blameless life of Christ and he credits it to us so we can now stand before the glory of God blameless, not because we were able to live blamelessly, but because Jesus was. This is why we cannot this is why we can not only stand before him blamelessly, but do it with great joy. Because we know this this isn't just God being secretly disappointed with us, but letting us kind of come in anyway. No, he looks at us and he sees only the righteous life of Jesus Christ. And he would no more look upon us with shame and disappointment than he would his own son. Be mesmerized by the majesty of God that is seen in this perfect, in the perfect justice of God and the mercy of God, both on full display in the wonder of the gospel message. Be absolutely confident that the God who punished his perfect son on the cross to purchase our redemption will not fail to do the much easier thing of keeping us from falling away. He is the only God and our Savior. To Him be all glory. It is unto Him that all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority belongs. And it was His before all time. And it is still His right now. That's what it says right there. Now, even in the middle of this time that is saturated with apostasy, and it will be, the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority will belong to Him also now and forever. It is this God This God who wants us to be aware of the false teaching going on all around us. It is this God who shows us what it looks like. It is this God who demands an appropriate response to it. So, beloved, let's take this threat as seriously as the Word of God demands that we do and engage it with the confidence of those who know that they are kept by the same God 
who has given us the gospel. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this message in Jude. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for for the prophecy of all of the apostles so that we can look around today at what seems like a Christianity that's in chaos and know that it is not out of the control of the sovereign hand of God. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that goes out with confidence and responds to false teaching like we really believe everything that you say about it is true. Thank you, Father, that you keep us. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name.